Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border once again. And this week we touch upon a lighter subject than on the previous shows, and on a more informed one, because, you know, as your usual host, I'm not an expert on everything. And, well, especially not when it comes to the early history of this region. That is why, that is why, as promised, I have this wonderful interview here with Artis, which is a historical reconstructor and does many, many other things. He's like, um, I don't know, imagine Bear Grylls just in real, real life. That, that's the best thing I can, I can tell you about him. Um, yeah, well, I actually, actually, not Artis, uh, tell my listeners about yourself. Um, yeah, because you have an amazing things of, of whatever you do there. Hello, uh, thank you for the invitation to be there. And um, as Chris has already said, my name is Artis. And I do quite a lot of things in my life. My primary work involves working with tourists as a tour guide both taking Latvians abroad and welcoming other people to, people to Latvia. Also, I'm involved with historical reenactment and also with more academic side of this, since for several last years I have been heavily involved with researching contacts of the Balt people and Scandinavians in, during pre-Viking times. Wow. I mean, you really skipped the part where you are also a diving instructor and you have climbed many mountains, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's uh, that's more uh, on the hobby side of it. But, uh, yeah, that's also part of some things that I do. I like traveling, hiking, climbing, mountaineering, diving, and quite a lot of other things as well, yes. <laughs> oh, excellent. Um, yeah, about, about all of these uh, contacts with the Scandinavian people... A lot of listeners uh, ask me, you know, because because uh, in the the game Crusader Kings two, uh, Latvian Latvia like territory of Latvia, especially the Coronians and everyone can build some sort of a Vendish empire, and we had a city Vend which was called Vendel and is now Tsesis. So first question is, do Latvians have anything to do with the Vend people, which are supposedly Slavic Slavic people, as far as I know of? But, you know, we had Venden there, and, uh, you know, my, some of my Scandinavian friends have said, oh, yes, these Vens, they colonized some, some things ab- abroad near their border or something. Actually, do we have anything to do with them? <laughs> that is a question that has been asked in the past several times, and lately there has been an unfortunate trend, especially among um, Russian researchers, to try to attribute Venden and Vens 
to the Venets. The Venets are one of the Slav tribes, and uh, their homeland is in mostly modern-day Germany, so quite far away from Latvia. And uh, Vents, on the other hand, accordingly to the archaeological finds we have and what historical records we have from the 13th century, are obviously belonging to the Finno-Ugric people. So they're closely related uh, to Livonians, but not exactly the same as the Livonians who used to live in uh, River Gauja area. The current theory is that they used to live near Venta River in Kuronia, and uh, after they were mm, forced to leave from there, most likely because of the conflict with Kuronians, who were Balt people and who were basically conquering the area for several past centuries and uh, driving uh, many Livonians out of their former inhabited places or becoming an overlords uh, for them. So apparently the Vents moved away from their former homeland. For a time they settled near current uh, Riga, but then they had to move again and uh, established their settlement near modern-day Cesis. And uh, from there, Cesis got its old name, Venden. Yeah, that kind of settles things up a bit, but that, that's one of the questions that, that we've received lately. Other, other interesting thing that I, that I really need to know is that, you know, let, let's talk about these Kuronians, because that, that, that's my nickname on, on the site as well. <laughs> my ancestors come from that area. Uh, on the episode we did on the Northern Crusade, I read some conflicting... Conflicting tales about the all of this Coronian and you know Latvian tribes. In general, I'm just going to call them Latvian tribes, even though by this point you, I think you shouldn't call them Latvians already. But uh, there are com- some complicated issues with this because some some people are are like very inclined to say that we were like these savage barbarians to whom the Crusaders brought civilization. And other people, in turn, respond to the fact that, well, yes, but but uh, Crusaders were the, these very oppressive Western people who treated us like Saracens and, you know, were very racist against us and all the all these things. Now, how was it like really like to be a you know a person living in um, a tribe in in Latvian territory back then when the Crusade came towards us? I mean. We had a lot of contact with the Scandinavians and, and before, I think, and also with the, with the Rus on the east. But, you know, because some, some sources say that we were like terrible savages and some sources say that, you know, we were kind of these idealistic, you know, noble savage stereotype things going on there. <laughs> well, so, that's, yes, a lot of that um, have been said and um, a lot of that uh, is a result of um, past century, especially romantic period of 30s, past century, when there was a lot of uh, literature published about um, our ancestors. And of course, uh, quite a lot of people have um, done both serious research and also quite a lot of fantasy about that. Uh, Essentially, what I can say for a person living at that time, um, you were part of your tribe, we can call them that, and uh, probably, of course, there was no general idea about any Latvians as a nation, because nations are (laughs) 19th century concept, so during 13th century, when the contact with Crusaders uh, happened most often, uh, 
the, the loyalty of somebody would be to his local chieftain, you could say. Maybe in a larger scheme of things, he would know that his chieftain is responsible to somebody else mm, who is a larger overlord of larger area, but of course uh, nothing like common nation, especially since there were different tribes. In As I already mentioned, in Kuronia, it was basically modern-day Kuronian Peninsula was divided between areas where Finno-Ugric people used to live and uh, where Kuronians, who were somewhat like a latecomers to the area, came and slowly pushed the Finno-Ugric people more north. And, of course, in Grobin there was a Scandinavian settlement, which is uh, my primary <laughs> work and uh, research object, since apparently Scandinavians lived there for several centuries, and it seems that they kept on living there even after 9th century, when some suggested that they were pushed out. And, but uh, recent finds suggest that they kept uh, living in Koronia, probably assimilating slowly, but not everyone. And, uh, of course, it's very um, widespread idea that, uh, to talk about one's ancestors, that, oh, those were those noble people who were living peacefully with nature, and uh, sometimes noble savages and, and stuff, but uh, the reality was that they were pretty much like any other person living uh, around Baltic Sea at that time. So, Koronians, without a doubt, they performed raids, both on land and on sea. We have records uh, from Gotland, from Denmark, uh, also from mainland Sweden, because, uh, at least in Chronicles, it's written that Koronians were part of the people who sacked Sigtuna. So, apparently they were quite a lot uh, like their neighbors. Uh, quite warlike at times, but at the same time, they were definitely not something you could call savages, if you look at their material culture, we see very beautiful works of art, both their everyday items, the things they used for decoration, different necklaces, neck rings, arm rings, their tools and weapons are decorated, so they obviously were not only raiders and warriors, exactly the same as it has been said about Scandinavians, both during Viking Age and before, um, most of them never went abroad raiding or never actually took part in any military action. Most of the people of that time were farmers or fishermen or, or whatever else, craftsmen. But of course, part of them were warriors. And regarding the <laughs> bringing civilization by Northern Crusades, well, <laughs> it depends on your point of view, of course. If you look... Um, at the point of view of the Western European Christian civilization of that time, of course, uh, their idea was that they're bringing civilizations, they're bringing the word of uh, Jesus Christ, the Savior, to the pagans. Mm, but uh, if you look at it from the point of view of the local pagans, that wasn't quite as nice thing that could happen. But of course, it's not that it wasn't first time they encountered Christianity and Christians, um, because um, there are indications that in Latgalia, uh, there was, especially along the river Daugava, there was already quite a lot of influence from Eastern Orthodox Church. And, uh, of course, Roman Catholic Church tried to spread its influence into this area as well. It's one of the old trade networks. So, 
it's it's uh, quite a bit more complicated than simply saying that all oh, those evil crusaders came and conquered everybody and became the evil masters, overlords, and everything. And at the same time, you can't really say that all oh, our ancestors were those nice pastoral people who just like to sing a lot and then play musical instruments and dance around. And <laughs> they were pretty much like everybody else at that time. Yeah, uh, I, I wanted to ask about the technology that Coronians used, uh, or or even Semigallians, I suppose, that's the correct term or something. Essentially about the technology levels in these parts, in comparison to the rest of, of Europe. In comparison to Crusaders specifically, I know we didn't have any plate, as far as I know. Uh, and also I've heard some rumors that uh, the Crusaders are actually mostly Scandinavian, not German, as we were taught in school. So can you comment? So can you like comment on this? Were the Crusaders really mostly Scandinavian, and what were the technological differences between us here and the like the Christian Crusaders who came here? Well, uh, one interesting thing is that I and a colleague of mine, Santa Jansson, recently wrote an article for Medieval Warfare magazine um, uh, about Northern Crusades and about more specifically about the bishops involved in warfare at that time. Essentially, from whatever indications we can glean from archaeology and from chronicles, the military technology level was essentially the same. Uh, crusaders during 13th century didn't use plate armor. <laughs> they were using the same sort of armor, basically male shirts, male halberts, you could say, helmets. Okay, they might have had um, male chausses, so like male trousers. Uh, that you can use to protect your body and main tool of defense was a shield. So plate armor comes mostly, of course there are some very early finds from second part of 13th century of coat of plate types of armor, but basically it's 14th century when plate armor starts to appear for real. Um, so there are some finds of lamellar plates, so just small metal plates that can be fashioned into the armor in Coronian territories. In Coronia, you can find we have finds of helmets of obviously local design and manufacture, made from iron, decorated with um, copper alloy plates. So apparently, the the weapons uh, that we see, um, there are indications that they were mostly swords, for example, were mostly blades were imported, but then uh, they were given local field garniture, and some, it would seem, were also locally manufactured. Um, spears, axes, um, a lot of those were of lo local manufacture, others were, were imported. So you could say that military technology was on approximately the same level. The different thing, of course, is that um, quite a lot of crusaders uh, had more, let's say, experience with larger scale warfare. but. Um, if we remember events like uh, Battle of Saul, when uh, basically the order of sword brothers, sword bearers, is essentially wiped out by Lithuanians and Senegalians, so you can't really say that the Crusaders had it all easy and, and they were so much superiorly armed and uh, trained. Also, if we remember from the later part of 13th century, the siege of Tervete Hillfort. Uh, accordingly to the Chronicle, um, it's 14,000 troops that are sent to besiege Hillfort using siege engines, and they fail. So, <laughs> uh, 
It's also been said often that all the local people had the wooden hill forts uh, which crusaders easily burn. Well, I would like to ask a question. Have anybody who says that ever tried to burn down um, a fortress made from oak tree from outside? Especially when it, when in Latvia with all this rain going on around these parts <laughs> exactly. and everything being wet all the time. It's wet and uh, we did an actually a bit of experiment uh, during one of reenactment events trying to use fe- fire arrows to start fire in deliberately mm, made part of the protective wall that was actually dosed in fire liquid. Well, we ended up having to use a torch even for that. <laughs> And actually, it's not easy to burn something from outside when it's wet, and especially since as some hill forts apparently were when you have uh, clay plastered over the outside. You yeah, because that, 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 really. that would just make sense, because you know, it, it, I, I don't know what people kind of think. You know, these, these forts were just like the wooden logs placed together. No, these, these, these people were, dear attention, dear listeners, these ancient people that we're talking about, they were kind of warlike people. They had been fighting with the other tribes in this area for a long time already. And uh, if, if the local tribe, if the local people hadn't figured out how to easily burn something, I doubt that the foreign crusaders would. Apparently. And also, uh, like I said, there's a, mm, there is an episode in one of the chronicles that says that during the battle, one of the pagans uh, picked up a helmet from a defeated crusader put it on his own head, and then run back to his own people, and those fled in panic, thinking that it's a crusader coming. So basically, you could say that the rest of his military equipment was, well, the same, apparently, if, if he looked um, so closely as a crusader. So, um, of course, the, the other thing is that most of the warriors, um, who were not primarily warriors, would not have um, male armor or probably not a good helmet and uh, most likely not a sword. There are quite a lot of sword finds in Kuronian territory, but those are mostly thought to have belonged to um, like a military retinue of a local war leader because uh, sword is not easy to use. It's a difficult weapon to use. It's definitely not the most popular weapon. The most popular weapon in human history is a spear. Uh, so it's, wait, it's, wait, wait, wait! Please explain this about swords. Uh, wh- why are they difficult to use, and what's what's so special about them? Because uh, you just stunned me here, Artis. <laughs> uh, that's because I've been uh, training with different sort of swords for quite a lot of years now. And uh, if we look uh, at how much time it takes to learn to properly use a sword. If you, I mean, if you really want to use it, not for a LARP game, uh, which is just make-believe and having fun with, with the friends, or for an enactment event, then it's also just, you know, having fun bashing each other with a, <laughs> with an iron sword. But uh, the thing is, it's a weapon that uh, takes quite a lot of time to master. Of course, any weapon takes a lot of time, but it is much easier to use, especially in larger, in massive combat, to use a spear than to use a sword, because you have to get closer to your opponent, and uh, the spear gives you reach. It's basically, that's why it has been the weapon of choice for most of the human history, before, of course, um, the firearms became primary weapons, and uh, an axe is probably 
much closer second than a sword. Also because making a sword is so much more difficult and expensive than making an axe head or making a spearhead. So it's a lot more work to get a good sword because most of what you can buy nowadays uh, on open market are very, very poorly done sword-like objects. Uh, a real properly made sword, sword costs a lot even nowadays and it cost quite a lot of money back then. That's why you see forgeries even back then, when people were trying to uh, imitate the famous makers, like the famous Ulfberg swords, and, and you see copies of This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The maid. <laughs> so, well, yeah, this, this is an interesting fact, really, but I don't know if if we're if we're into weapons now. You're a reconstructor, so recently I listened to a podcast by Dan Carlin where he kind of tries to understand the ancient ways of combat more closely. I mean, we we modern people don't really understand what's it like to fight in this hand-to-hand combat for the most part, and uh, that's why I'm asking you with the with the most experience here because. I don't know, as as we imagine this, like, ancient and medieval battlefields, it's people in close formation with their, like, at least ancient, especially when we're talking about Greco-Roman times, it's people in close formation, st- standing together, then you clash into the other side, and, you know, but, but how does it work if you, how does it actually function? Because uh, ancient authors didn't leave much to to us there, they just said, well, one side pushes, and then the other side routes, and, you know, Vikings also used shield walls, so not much really changed in combat, I think, until the invention of gunpowder. So, what's it like to fight, like, a medieval medieval or, or ancient warrior in, in a melee battle? I mean, it, it, it must be kind of, you know, really frightening to think about the fact that, you know, you know, in modern wars, the horror is just all around you, but you still fight from a range, from a range, and, and but, in, but in those days, you know, all the horror of the world just comes down to you in like a, a single moment in time, so to speak. Well, there know. are many things involved, of course. I can say that from my personal experience, probably the most sort of frightening or closest moment to that have been during reenactment of Battle of Visby. Uh, which involved also horses, so standing in a close formation, in a shield formation, when there's a charging horses coming at you, 
mounted knights with lances uh, who are breaking their lances on your shield and actually the, the strength of the strike is such that despite you being in formation you basically go <laughs> go down from the heat even though nobody is actually trying to kill you it's um, it gives quite a lot of, pers of perspective on that but um, the thing is that close formation is one way that you can coordinate the actions on a battlefield because otherwise before the invention of the radio um, it's really hard to get your message or, or directions across uh, we tried that uh, while you fighting in a shield wall and all the sound uh, and everything makes it very very hard to control the battle so the close formation is one way that you can get at least people moving in the general direction you want and to get them do more or less what you want and also it, this formation gives you a support from the other people next to you because you feel your comrades next to you and, and that helps mm, but uh, of course nobody <laughs> except from actual military who have for one reason or another ended up in real close combat can't really tell what it was like because now as you correctly said we fight in different ways and uh, even reenactors don't really try to kill other people it's just for fun and for training and to show other people's how it might have looked like but one thing is that um, yes in spear formation especially if it's deeper than one line normally there would be several lines of the warriors supporting and sort of pushing forward uh, if for example you manage to get around the other side and attack it from the rear or from the side then you can disrupt the formation and as soon as the formation is disrupted then basically you 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 rope and most of the people during battle die at the moment when people are routing because it's much easier to run after somebody and kill him from behind than try to defend yourself and running uh, this has been proven by archaeological excavations because um, when excavating the site of Battle of Bisbee, which happened in the second half of the 14th century, they found mass graves and they invited criminologists to examine the bodies. Well, skeletons, really. So they was, were able to determine that most injuries were received when the people were actually running away already. So they basically, as soon as one side starts to rout, others just mo <laughs> basically runs after it and... and and kills them. So there's a lot of aspects involved and uh, actually one one of those things is that the swords were not that prevalent weapon even for a knight, for a Christian knight, primary weapon would have been a lance if he's mounted or or in many cases uh, a poleaxe in later history like uh, late yeah, 14th, but, 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 15th century. But I but when you think about a lance, you know, if you're a knight and you're charging someone, then, uh, you know, okay, they, they charge someone with their lances and, you know, with, with all this point of impact, they, they crush through their armor. But how do you get the lance out? Like, didn't they, like, get stuck or something? Oh, and uh, while I'm at this, I want to dispel a certain thing, which, uh, which a lot of people think that medieval knights were extremely immobile. Uh, that is just simply not true. There are videos online and uh, the idea that they were carried by winches on top of their horse and they were just lowered upon them, it's its false. The armor is not that heavy and it is not that cumbersome as you might imagine. But that's a side note. But really, how, how did they... Well, I mean, you, char <laughs> you charge someone and then, then what you do? You, you, your lawns is, say, a, a, a per... It, it, 
it's in a person, okay? So how do you pull it out? <laughs> well, there are several things that uh, people who have examined uh, existing weapons and uh, images and descriptions from medieval times, because from later medieval periods there are already including instruction manuals how to fight. Those textbooks uh, which give uh, instructions for prospective warriors. And uh, one of the things is that it does not necessarily get really stuck. You can, the lance also is not immobile. You can turn it and you can try to yank it out. So, other thing is, after a charge, knights can return to their own lines. Their uh, assistants give them fresh lances and they can charge again. So, it's not like they have, you know, one lance. It's not like in role playing games where you have a hero traveling across the country. Well, all by himself, or or in a small band, uh, a normal medieval knight could have a quite quite a large retinue of, of followers of warriors who assist them. Same as with crusaders. If you read that in a battle there, like five crusaders died, it doesn't mean that uh, there were like uh, only if 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 five brothers of the order died, that means that each of them had an assistant. Uh, many in many cases, or there were like local militia warriors, and there were also mm, mercenaries. So it's in all likelihood there was a lot more people dying. But uh, the important ones are the ones who are uh, written in chronicles. As about the armor, yes, definitely. I fight in armor. I move in armor. Mine, I have several, sort of, including starting from recreations of seventh century Scandinavian armor up to. Uh, late 14th century English armor, and you can move freely. There is no point of wearing armor if you are immobilized by it. Uh, only armor that actually heavily restricts movement is the one that is designed for protection in specific sports games, like uh, later knights tournaments, when you have uh, specific types of the tournaments. So the armor was designed deliberately for this task. It's the same as comparing I don't know, maybe American football players' armor with uh, modern, like, uh, marine uh, body armor. They but, but, designed but for wait, different things. <laughs> Art is, by the way, interesting, interesting fact, which I lear learned recently. Do you know who kind of invented and enforced the use of the armor in American football? <laughs> actually, it no. It, it was actually Theodore Roosevelt, because uh, his son died in a football match. Oh. And uh, all, all the country was about to just shut down all American football as an institution, but the Theodore Roosevelt was a huge fan of it, and he kind of decided decided that, you know, let's let's force everyone put on this to put on this armor so that they could actually continue the game. It was interesting in this fact, but so the armor is there just so that the sport can continue, because it was a bit deadly before. <laughs> well, like many sports uh, in on occasion, but it's the same with the, those medieval armors especially in a later part of medieval period, which is basically outside a bit of focus of this specific discussion, but, but they were designed to defend against specific tasks, and they were not designed to be used in actual combat. The actual combat armor uh, gives you almost complete freedom of movement, otherwise it's useless. So, basically, in, my ar in armor I can run, I can jump, I can make all sorts of movements, and I know people who can do backflips in armor. It's not that heavy, it's not that restrictive, if it is correctly made, and if it's made for a specific person to use, as it was originally. Because it's not mm, one-size-fits-all issue item. There were so-called munition armors in later medieval period, 
but those were mostly you made breastplates or helmets that way. You didn't make the, the entire suits of armor because it wait, what do you mean? Dungeons and Dragons economy is wrong. Sorry. <laughs> wait, what do you mean? Dungeons and Dragons economy is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, absolutely. Is that despite that uh, I still like the game, but uh, mm, but the economy there is completely different because basically every suit of armor, even the mail armor that uh, quite a lot of people still call chainmail, even if it's a wrong term to use. Uh, but uh, it's even this is usually tailored to specific person. Because then it's lighter, it fits better, it's allow you move faster, and that's the important thing in combat. And the same with a helmet. They're designed in such a way to prevent your injury and to give you the maximum possible possibility to breathe and see. Of course, it restricts your sight somewhat, but again, in many cases you see people using, in movies and also in reenactment, using horsemen's helmets on foot, while uh, usually it was not done so. Those great helms that people, so many people like to use, uh, or imagine that knights, dismounted knights used, usually they didn't use them, those are horsemen's helmets. They're designed to prevent somebody stabbing you with something pointy in your face while you are on horseback, uh, while on foot you would use a different time. Hmm. What's, what's really interesting for me is that, you know, this, this kind of proves the fact that the ancient peoples were really, you know, in, ingenu ingenious and they had a lot of skill. And I think that's sort of a prevailing theory among a lot of people these days that, you know, they like to speak about these dark ages and how much smarter we are than the ancient peoples and, you know, when we're thinking about this uh, this idea of specifically made armor and and how actually much work they put into their fortifications and armor and even everyday tools i might say and if you, if you look at the buildings that they constructed this kind of ruins the whole idea of you know us right now being some sort of you know a superior superior people than we were we were before i, I don't know what do you think well the thing is that uh, of course nowadays we have a much easier access to information than it was back then. Mm, we can actually get a lot of information very fast, very easy, and uh, of course it affects the way how we think, how we do, but uh, on the other hand, as a result, we tend to dismiss earlier people and earlier civilizations as, mm, as ignorant or stupid, which they definitely were not, otherwise they would not have survived and we wouldn't be around. But uh, the thing is that even if you look, for example, at ancient Greek armor, you see a lot of forms that are basically reused later. Okay, uh, in ancient Greece they started to be made out of bronze. Later you see them in iron, but the basic idea is the same. You try to protect the vital parts of the human body from harm. And uh, if you look at the modern body armor that uh, soldiers now use, uh, you can see a, really a lot of similarities between that and the uh, second half of 14th century body armor, except that uh, instead of um, linen or leather cover and iron plates, now you see materials like Kevlar weave and, uh, and then you see composite materials used for plates because there is different uh, threats to protect from, but the basic idea is the same. You have human body and you need to protect it. 
And yeah, because uh, our, our flesh is uh, unfortunately very susceptible to threats delivered to it by sharp metal objects. <laughs> exactly. This, no, and no matter if they're a result of exploding hand grenade or, or stabbing sword or, or axe or whatever. And as for the other things, the term Dark Ages is actually really wrong. That's a um, term that's very often used to describe period between fall of um, the Western Roman Empire and, uh, uh, let's say, the, the late Middle Ages, uh, which is really wrong. If you look, for example, at the finds, actually here in Latvia, where we have um, pre-Viking Age finds in Grobin, um, and if you look at the finds from the same time period in Scandinavia or, uh, or, or Western Europe, like in England or modern-day Germany, France, look at the places like Satanhu, Burial in, in England, or, or Valsjarde, or Vendel graves in, in Sweden, or in Latvia and Grobin, uh, you see very richly decorated helmets, basically very solid iron construction with decorative plates over the top, decorated with garnet inlay with very, very um, detailed uh, decorations, swords with garnet uh, decorated hilts. And, and horns, obviously the helmets all had horns, right? Right? Uh, none of them. <laughs> <laughs> none of them had horns. <laughs> and, and actually the only finds of horned helmets are from uh, either much earlier or much later periods. And uh, yeah, because uh, uh, to be honest from my experience, I can't really imagine anything less useful in combat than having horns in your helmet. Well, you know, they had the pickle halb at one point. Uh, yes, the, but, but the that's, that's <laughs> different. Pickle halb is also, it's, it's the construction is different, and it also doesn't have those horns sticking out and catching on anything, including sharp objects, because the helmet's idea is to shed the damage. So basically, if a hit comes from up, you want it to glance off, you don't want it to get caught on something. Yeah, there 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 are those people who think that helmets had horns and later pickle halbes had these spikes on them, so that you know if if you are an infantry person and the cavalry charges you, then you can stab the horse with your helmet, <laughs> which would be ridiculously stupid, I think, because your head would just you know you'd break your spine or something. I definitely wouldn't advise trying to hurt hurt a horse doing that, but but you certainly would get hurt much more by a horse trampling you than a horse would be injured by the helmet. But, uh, but definitely that's not something that's uh, realistic. Uh, we have finds of those helmets from 6th, 7th, 8th century. Uh, like I said, they are richly decorated with garnets, with, sometimes with gold, with silver, with gilding. And uh, they have uh, we have found uh, nowadays helmets that have boars on top of them, like in Beowulf, which is an Anglo-Saxon legend. So, basically, many of those le legends apparently are quite close to reality. And um, in, in that regard, they depict the um, equipment uh, used correctly. And uh, you see a lot of this very, very rich equipment, but uh, you must remember that it's not something, again, like... But a lot of people think that uh, from role-playing games that oh I go go to battle like a poor peasant and then I on a battlefield I loot that and I will be wearing that. Sorry, I have to disappoint the people who think that way because uh, 
from what we can learn from history, apparently, it was almost never quite like that. Uh, usually, the people who went to fight first were the local noblemen, because that was their obligation. Uh, they were the ones preserving traditions, they were the ones who served as administrators, as judges, uh, they also were the first one to go into battle, because that's what they were there for, they were the leaders, and they were responsible for their community. So the farmers, they are here to farm, those uh, local elite, local nobles, they are there to take care of everybody else. And so they are the first ones into the battle, not uh, somebody standing behind and telling people, okay, you bravely charge ahead, I will just, you know, stand there and, and wait out. It just didn't happen that way, because otherwise you lost all respect, and if you lost all respect, then, well, you won't have any followers, <laughs> and nobody would care about you. So Yeah, because because your your legitimacy and kind of your right to rule comes from this, this, this respect, I, I understand, like, now we have this term Karadraudze, I presume that's the ruling elite over over there. Basically, the Karadraudze it's, it's like war band that's following the local local leader, and there is still a lot of discussion how prevalent was uh, those big war bands and in, when they start to appear. What we definitely can say is that uh, we see weapons uh, in burials of Balt people, in, in Finno-Ugric people, burials, in Scandinavian burials, all the time. Of course, mostly it's spears, uh, battle knives, uh, it's axes, sometimes, especially in late Iron Age, it's, the sword becomes more, you could say, fashionable. Mm, because, like I said, it's not usually the primary weapon of combatant. Primary would be spear, even for a war leader. Uh, because you find very, very richly decorated spears with silver inlay, with, with, with all sorts of decorations, with pattern-welded parts that would be very expensive, very beautiful. But uh, the sword is, in many cases, a symbol. It's something that shows that this guy is a leader, he is, or belongs to a warband, he is a person of authority, and he has a the resources to get himself a sword or is awarded a sword for good service so he probably knows how to use it and you probably don't want to mess with him and uh, this is uh, so that's why one of the reasons also why you see those weapons appear more as uh, probably the warbands become more n numerous um, of course there is still a situation that uh, almost every man was probably ready to fight if it was necessary. If an enemy comes to attack your land, basically you you are part of the local <laughs> minutemen, you could say, local militia that get called up if if the local leaders decide that, okay, there's a big warband coming, we don't have sufficient forces only with our sort of military elite to defeat it, we just call up everybody, we fight together, and uh, afterwards, uh, yeah, we live on. Or, or maybe go and take revenge on somebody who attacked us. But <laughs> that's a different story. Uh, but essentially it is that, mm, what I want to say is that at that time we don't have a ruling leisure class. Like you would see, for example, like in 18th century France. <laughs> uh, even in medieval Europe, you can't really say that uh, most of the nobility was a leisure class. They had to work on quite a lot, just on different things. They were not working in a field or 
or workshop. But uh, they were the rulers and they were the judges and uh, diplomats and everything like that. So it's not for quite a long time the civilization really did not have all that much in a way of pleasure class who don't really have to work. They, they just it was just a different sort of work. Okay. Well, you know, we, we're speaking about uh, war and combat for 40 minutes now. Um, what about the everyday life? What were the contacts of these local people, like the peaceful contacts? I, you know, I know the dog of a trade route is important, and uh, I have role played when I was 13, no less, in the very first LARP, an Arabian who happened to be in these parts, and that was quite realistic, you know, because the Emirate of Cordoba. But, I don't know, did did any of us, Balts, actually make it to the Constantinople? Do we have any records of, of trading with, with the sea, so to speak? Or what were our contacts with the Kiev and Rus, for example, and, and how did we spend our everyday lives? Well, um, regarding those trade contacts, uh, I would like to first ask you a question. Do you know any flint? Um, places where you could mine for flint in Latvia, for flint stone. Well, not really, no, it's kind of just not here, exactly. as far as I know. And the point is that uh, you know what's the primary material used for weapons and tools in Stone Age? Yes, of course, it is flint. Exactly. So, we have quite a lot of stone tools in Latvia, and we don't have any good places to find flint, only a few stray finds. So basically, all of that material is trade. Already in, a, in Stone Age, <laughs> the people were trading quite far. And uh, when you look on a sort of more modern times, relatively speaking, like uh, during Mycenaean civilization in Greece, which is something like uh, 13th century BC, uh, that means that they have finds of Baltic amber in Greece at that time. So that's Bronze Age. So there is already a trade network at that time, and they have, for example, bronze swords in Greece from that time, which are made in, in Northern Europe. So trade was very important. Uh, so it was not like our ancestors were living in an empty place somewhere and, and without any outside contacts, as some people also want to suggest. Mm. Yeah, poor, poor medieval people who uh, lived in the trees and ate fish and poetry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically, and try to defend themselves with with, uh, with only wooden tools, uh, which is kind of not, just not true. The thing is that yes, one of the major um, trade routes, uh, so-called from Varyaks um, to uh, to Greeks, went uh, also through our area, and we have quite a lot of finds from that. Also, there was a very busy trade network in Baltic Sea as well, and uh, obviously. Uh, we can, if, if we look, for example, at the burials, burial fields along the trade, those um, rivers which served as a trading network, we see quite a lot more imported goods there than we see further away. Um, and uh, there is a lot of imported stuff, like I already mentioned, uh, quite a lot of weapon uh, materials were imported. We see quite a lot also of uh, cloth uh, objects textiles, uh, which were obviously imported, um, so it was important, but of course not, not everybody was uh, also, not everybody was a merchant, and uh, there is indication that, for example, Daugmal Hillfort, especially in uh, 12th and 13th century, it served as um, like a trading city, trading place, 
and probably there was quite a lot of others as well. So it was important, but we don't have any documental evidence that somebody from Latvia himself traveled or herself traveled all the way to Constantinople, for example. We simply don't have this sort of um, chronicles or, or it's not recorded. It's very likely that somebody probably did. People like to travel and they like to do it back then as well. So it's quite possible. Yeah, you, you, you should know artists. <laughs> yeah, I, I have been in Greece earlier this year with tourists, yes. <laughs> and, and, uh, as, uh, and in Turkey last year. So essentially, yes, uh, it's um, quite likely, but we don't have documented proof that somebody from here traveled um, all that distance, but we know we have very much evidence for trade. As for everyday life, well, most, like I said, most people were farmers, they were also fishermen, they were craftsmen. Uh, we have, starting from practically early Iron Age, we have sites where the bog, Iron was made in, in, into an actual iron in Latvia, so that quite a lot of local tools and weapons were made from this material. Of course, probably those who could afford it um, tried to get themselves, you know, more like fancy stuff. Like uh, we have the Ulver swords in Latvia, so those were like uh, like Ferrari of that time, and uh, very sort of fashionable, very expensive, and if somebody could get it, he probably was a very rich and important person. And same for the jewelry, uh, because also we don't have any mines where we could mine for parts that are needed for bronze. Tin or copper, it's just not there in Latvia, so all that bronze stuff, and we have an awful lot of it, is imported. Same for silver. We simply don't have any mines for that. So that is all of those ornaments, it's uh, brought from abroad, materials for them at least, because most of the local style jewelry was probably made locally, but the materials had to be brought in from other places. If we, we look at, um, for example, Araishi, uh, lake, uh, lake settlement, uh, there we have a lot of finds of tools that were used for different crafts, and many of those tools are very carefully made, decorated. For example, handles of holes are very beautiful. We have um, tools that indicate that people were making jewelry, that they were also they were um, apiary craft, you know, with bees. We we have tools used for that. We use different tools for tilling the earth. So people were used. Basically, they lived uh, as, as most other people did, mostly by by farming and by by crafting. Uh, and yes, of course, uh, by by trading, also sometimes by raiding or by defending themselves from from raiders. And when crusaders come, actually, for vast majority of the people, nothing much changes at least until probably second half of the 15th century. Because uh, if we look at the, again at the historical documents, uh, it would appear that after the Crusaders take over, uh, quite a lot of local people are granted um, land uh, under, let's just say, new management, <laughs> but still basically most of the everyday life remains the same, except of course the presence of Christian church, 
which slowly makes itself more important in everyday life of um, everybody involved. But at least for uh, the first um, century or, or even century and a half, nothing really changes. We, we can't really speak about, at least historically accurately, about 700 years of evil slavery. It's, it's just crap. <laughs> because usually, you know, what happens if a slave gets a weapon? Uh, I don't know. He gets killed? Uh, no, usually he kills somebody first. And then, yeah, usually he gets killed. Uh, but, but the thing is uh, that all those people who love to tell the stories about the evil slavery and, and stuff tend to forget that uh, we have historical records that local people were providing military forces for Livonian order. And I'm not speaking about a couple of guys with, with wooden clubs. It's, it's, uh, they have specific forms where it's described what everybody should bring in, in, in case of a military call-up, and that includes armor, weapons, and uh, basically quite a lot of people were living uh, quite a for decent life for that time, basically exactly in the same way as in Western Europe. So it's it's not like uh, it was it wasn't um, let's say like uh, like some sort of colony with poor stupid local people who are enslaved and then uh, then then basically work on plantation all day and uh, with evil overlord walking around and just cracking his whip all the time. It it didn't really work that way, at least not here, because. Uh, of course, uh, there wasn't that many crusaders. They had to make compromises. They had to make agreements with local. Uh, for example, in Kuronia, we have the Kurshutuanini, who had an agreement with the order uh, established in 13th century, and that agreement was respected up until late 19th century by Russian Empire. If you come to think of it, why would a Russian emperor have to pay any heed to, to some sort of agreement uh, between some local people somewhere on outskirts of his empire with, with some long-gone religious order. But still, their rights were respected in the regard that they were not considered uh, sort of um, the class of people who um, are almost like properties. They were free people for that time. Hmm. Interestingly enough, um, yeah. Let's, thank you for this valuable information, and you know, uh, just just to like end this conversation in a positive note, I'd like to ask you about our ancient Latin religion. And you know, a lot of listeners have been wondering: was it somewhat similar to the Scandinavians, or, or what was what was going on there? As far as I know, um, it's kind of you know, we we had what we know from our dinas, we had a certain pantheon of gods or something, but I, I highly doubt that it's even like remotely similar to what the Dieftori agencies or some other nice people on the internet, and thank you artists for sharing this with me beforehand, um, there are people here in Latvia who think that there were some Baltic and Celtic druids going on, which is nonsense, but um, yeah, what, what can you tell us about the, the common things, and you know, maybe you can shed some light on, on the matter here. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, most of what we know about um, our ancestors' religion can be summed up with two words, damn little. <laughs> the problem is that uh, they did not leave themselves any sort of uh, historical records that we could use. 
uh, and the crusaders weren't much interested in recording details of the local religions at that time. Uh, it's not like uh, later um, activities of conquistadors who had actually monks recording such things about the people they encountered. So basically what we know, we know that, uh, yes, the locals were pagans, we know that they had certain rituals, for example, the ritual for determining person's fate was with a horse stepping over the spear, sort of deciding its fate. We also had know that uh, they had a tradition of destroying part of the war booty, like uh, uh, there is a moment in Chronicle where Chronist uh, writes that those stupid pagans actually burn part of good loot, good weapons and armor that they had taken in battle. So apparently that was some sort of dedication to their local gods. About the Dinas, the unfortunate thing is that those are uh, oral tradition and uh, a lot of new things got added to them between, say, 13th century and 19th when they are recorded. That's an awful lot of time, and those things change. Mm, of course, there are experts who are trying to decide which are older versions, which are more modern, but it's quite obvious that a lot of um, things in them uh, that supposedly talk about uh, our deities are heavily intermingled with Christian religion already. So we really know very, very little. Uh, most likely, uh, we did not have uh, much many followers of uh, Scandinavian-style religion. And actually, even in Scandinavia, it wasn't universal. I mean, there are different areas where different gods were more worshipped and others less. Um, Odin might have been considered the sort of primary deity in, in, in uh, northern sort of pantheon, but uh, there were places where like Thor or, or Freyr would be more worshipped. So it's not, it's not like, it's a modern thing to try to classify everything as almost a rigid construct, especially in religion. Um, yeah, but you, but you know you have to you have to take 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 into account the fact that those old Scandinavian gods are like really cool. Yes, like my yes, cat's yes. name, my my my, ca my cat's name like Freya right now. Okay. Yes. <laughs> but it's just that, I don't know. We we have this obsession with these things, and um, we we just tend to ignore the fact that some some of our some of the things that we think are true are not based in history at all. For example, I named my cat Freya just because a friend of mine has named his Athena. So, you know. <laughs> yes, well, it's, it's a nice thing, and she's probably a very nice <laughs> nice kitty. But uh, the thing is that uh, we know, unfortunately, little. And yes, all the Diabturi basically beliefs are based on the work of Ernest Brastinch in the beginning of last century, in a romantic who was, period. Who, who was, by, by the way, uh, connected to uh, this... Uh, uh, what was his name? The guy who built the Coral Castle. Uh, Edwards. Ah. Edwards. Let's call him. That guy. Yeah, apparently Edward, uh, Ed's Sweet Sixteen was a niece of Mr. Braslich. Mm -hmm. So his pagan beliefs had uh, kind of inspired Ed to later build the Coral Castle. I, I speak about this on, on the Astonishing Legends show on this episode. But yeah, that struck me very as, as a very weird thing. <laughs> Well, I don't know. Yes, and it's, it's interesting that people, at that time, it was actually quite a lot of, so you could say, cultural revival of the, of the mm, supposed old beliefs in all over Europe, and uh, in Latvia, obviously, as well. Which is not a bad thing in itself. It's the same as with a lot of our 
you could say symbols from the time when we were fighting for our independence in the 90s. You remember all the Name rings and, and, and also the, the Leolards, uh, US and, and that sort of stuff, which are actually, if you look at this same Leolards belt, which is very beautiful, but the stuff that people were trotting out saying, oh, here is our ancient history recorded from the times immemorial, is actually in 19th century fine. And earlier belts, woven belts from the same area have some of the same ideas but are neither that wide nor 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 exactly in the same way made so <laughs> so a lot of those things are important at one time and uh, but they do not necessarily reflect sort of historically accurate things but that doesn't make them any sort of less important in more modern context and so the dfp movement also was important in last century it's, it's probably important for the people who believe in it even nowadays but uh, it's very wrong to think that it's the same as with most modern paganism beliefs uh, they are sincere beliefs of those people who believe in it and it's their absolute right to, to do it the way they like it but i think it's a mistake to try to attribute it as an accurate representation of what our ancestors believed because well Okay, there are probably people who are sure that they can actually ask and receive answers from them, but, but <laughs> I do not belong <laughs> among those people who think that, well, I can ask, but I don't really think I will get an answer. So, so we simply, we really know, unfortunately, very little. Uh, we know they had uh, sacred stones, like spe special places, sacred places where they went, but we lack details, and about another of the Balt tribes, about the Prussians, uh, there is some historical records of um, monks and travelers who recorded some things that might be related to their religion, but it's again heavily influenced by Christianity and Christian, Christian perspective on those pagan beliefs. So, it's <laughs> unfortunately, it's one of those things where I would really love to know more, but uh, the information is just not there. Maybe there is something in a, in some records done by somebody among the crusaders that are still locked away in Vatican archives, but again, it's not a place where you can just go and ask <laughs> easily for such information. Huh. Well, well, uh, thank you for this conversation. It's been very informative and very inter interesting. And we've learned a lot of new things. And I hope you won't mind that I will share on my website and, and, and uh, on, on my Facebook page some pictures of, of you doing the reconstruction things. <laughs> just just wait those pictures with me first so that you don't post something like 10, 15 years old. <laughs> oh, no, no. I'm just going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to take some, some newer pictures that, that, you, that you've shared with us. Don't worry about this. Yeah. So thank you. And this has been Artis, my, my friend and... and uh, colleague in a way from Latvia trying to introduce you with the ways of uh, our lands and I hope you found this episode entertaining and informative and if you have any questions whatsoever please do send them to theeasternborer at gmail.com uh, as we will have a question and answer episode in the, in the Christmas special and yeah <laughs> this actually made me rethink that uh, my whole stance on on the Northern Crusade episode and you've been you've been wanting this so See you next time when we shall be talking about Dead Ideas with the Dead Ideas podcast, specifically about the Red Scare. 
I hope you'll enjoy that one. And goodbye. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.